Episode 14, Commerce on the Internet. For all of Bitcoin's talk about price action, the rivaling of fiat money, the takedown of central banking and sovereign individualism, the stated aim of the Satoshi White Paper was to address the problem of commerce on the internet. His problem was that all commerce on the internet relied on the trust-based banking model. Quote, Commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. With all the talk and hype about Bitcoin as something of a get-rich-quick scheme, commerce on the internet may feel like an odd reason for the creation of one of the most important technologies in history. Yet, from a narrow perspective, Solving the problems of commerce on the internet without the need for money middlemen will create vastly more wealth than simply a digital gold. The problems of middlemen are legion and not worth the effort talking about. But when it comes to money on the internet, the use of middlemen creates numerous problems that may not be apparent to the average consumer. Yet, peer-to-peer -peer money, money native to the internet, allows commerce to truly flourish outside the limited purview of the banking and financial sector. The use of middlemen on the internet has provided an unnatural barrier to entry for commerce on the internet for decades now. Sending money around the internet is much harder than it needs to be. All it is, is financial information. You need some stake in the real world to start with, like a bank account and government-issued ID, for example. It has meant that the internet has become an information highway, yet the most important level of information, money, has been gate-kept by undesirable stakeholders. It has created an unusual impact on the balance of the internet. It means a peer-to-peer -peer communications platform like the internet is very top-down with only a few corporations controlling the most valuable information. It has turned the average person's experience of commerce from a broadly peer-to-peer -peer exchange of goods into one of consumers, not producers. The top-down nature of internet commerce, in turn the internet's deflationary impact, is something we talked about in the mini-audiobook at the start of this podcast. Since the advance of the World Wide Web 30 years ago, the beginning of the information age has sucked money from under ordinary people, who often had jobs somewhere in the middle of the financial hierarchy as profitable middlemen in all sorts of areas of the economy. In short, the middle classes worked in the middle of where wealth was produced, hence why they were middle class. England, once called a nation of shopkeepers, has become something of a nation of office workers, where the middle classes are placated by unfulfilling office jobs, processing and ordering around the wealth of the globalised elite, yet not benefiting from this action. The Thatcherite revolution and the deregulation of the economy away from the state and towards the corporations was not undone by the coming of the internet. The internet just gave the corporations the ability to take control of another medium. The average Englishman did not become an online shopkeeper with the coming of the internet as they engaged in e-commerce, but England became just another country beholden to Amazon and other digital corporate entities. 
The internet as it currently exists has meant that barriers to entry for online shopkeeping has become larger and more difficult than with a physical store. Firstly, of course, you need something to sell, then a website, traffic to come to this website, and then you need to be able to compete on price when the entire internet is just a click away for a price check against you. Then you have to compete against Amazon with free next day delivery and Amazon Web Services subsidizing the retail arm. Then you need a middleman to facilitate the payment. Anybody who has used PayPal will tell you of the pain and frustration they've had with this. These problems all build up over time, meaning that smaller and smaller online businesses just cannot compete on all of these fronts. And anything truly successful can just be copied by the corporations. So it has come as no surprise, therefore, that the vast majority of online commerce sites has occurred through traditional payment providers and major online stores. It has created a strange lack of decentralized commerce on the most decentralized information exchange the world has yet created. Yet, building from the ground up, certain types of decentralized online commerce can begin to thrive with the invention of Bitcoin. Perhaps, therefore, it is natural that the most pure online commercial venture to take advantage over the lack of rules is found by people wanting to break these rules. It should strike us as obvious, therefore, that drugs were to be the first place that true peer-to-peer -peer online money would monetize. The invention of Bitcoin has allowed for a whole new type of information to be passed around. Monetary information can be sent without a middleman, allowing for whole new forms of commerce to be experimented with, and allowing the most tech-savvy individuals to look like street-smart individuals for the first time too. Commerce on the internet goes right back to the earliest days of the World Wide Web. It was well known that simple exchanges of information would one day include financial information. Early native concepts of how to facilitate online commerce on the internet goes all the way back to Digicash by David Chalm, who conceived of a way to send financial information across the web cryptographically with enough safeguards to hide where the financial data was going or coming from. Had the system caught on from the release in the late 1980s and early 1990s, it could have facilitated true internet commerce far quicker than it eventually took. However, a mix of fortune and planning meant that the pioneers of commerce on the internet came from the old guard. Jeff Bezos was a financial executive before setting up Amazon, and exploited sales tax loopholes to offer books far cheaper than on the high street, and could make it almost as convenient as going to the local store. Amazon did not use Charm's work, but used regular bank details to facilitate payments over the internet, as though you were ordering via telephone. It is somewhat surprising to me how many people quite went through the whole process of inputting their credit card information onto the World Wide Web without much hesitation in those early days. New technology is inherently untrustworthy, but the fact people were willing to use internet commerce with little doubt was probably unexpected. Meanwhile, the reaction from banking corporations to move in rapidly and offer services and products to adapt this new medium was fairly staggering. It meant that indigenous internet financial services 
were at an immediate disadvantage. Despite the decentralising concept of the internet, the first monopoly formed on it were payment technologies. The financial corporations were very quick to recognise that credit and debit cards could be used to send information across cyberspace, with the financial services of course acting as the middlemen and taking a cut for themselves. Far from liberating money from corporations, the cornering of the internet by financial services was the first step of centralisation that started with financial information and became most information on the web. Google, Amazon and Facebook could now grow on top of the internet, with it already having been co-opted by the financial companies. The development of centralised finance on top of the internet was disastrous for early internet commerce. The largest problem was it made internet commerce very similar to ordering from a catalogue over telephone. A radical growth of the internet was undermined by the rules and regulations of these financial firms. The internet could be seen as a reflection of human society with less barriers. But this was never quite true, as many barriers were in place by the strict rules and regulations the legacy banking services had as they controlled the flow of monetary information on the internet. Any concept of libertarian internet fantasies and of freedom from government tyranny was straight away undermined by these gatekeepers. E-commerce was essentially digitised catalogues, not radical forms of information flow. For a second generation of web users, those you might want to label as early normies, they became far too happy with traditional payment forms that eBay and Amazon offered, and only a modest convenience of buying using this model over that of going to a car boot sale or ordering from a department store catalogue. Early normies never even considered tapping into more radical forms of communication now possible by using something like Digicash, which had nothing on Bitcoin in terms of radicalism, but would have allowed a far more subversive form of commerce to begin. The large financial institutions won over, and so during the 1990s, it was only elements of the internet's radicalism that won people over, not its payment mechanisms. Amazon grew and grew, allowing you to buy almost anything at cheap prices with quick delivery. eBay allowed ordinary people to start selling their own second-hand items and their own merchandise. So powerful had these internet giants become that customers would not even search around for the best prices merely trust that Amazon would offer the best price and service. This was not a decentralised internet, an internet that promised a radical change. E-commerce sites became incredibly globalised mega-corporations within a decade or so. E-commerce had to follow the exact rules and regulations of the physical world. The only money that could be transacted on grey and black markets without anybody noticing was cash through the post. So forms of online cash had the possibility to radically break open the potential of commerce on the internet. Fast forward to 2008 and Satoshi released his proposal for a digital cash, something designed to be workable right away, scalable over time and peer-to-peer -peer in nature. It was this problem of centralisation of commerce on the internet that Satoshi addresses in the first paragraph of his white paper. Quote, 
Commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. While the system works well enough for most transactions, it still suffers from the inherent weaknesses of a trust-based model. Completely non-reversible transactions are not really possible, since financial institutions cannot avoid mediating disputes. The cost of mediation increases transaction costs, limiting the minimum practical transaction size and cutting off the possibility for small, casual transactions. And there is the broader cost in the loss of ability to make non-reversible payments for non-reversible services. With the possibility of reversal, the need for trust spreads. Merchants must be wary of their customers, hassling them for more information than they would otherwise need. A certain percentage of fraud is accepted as unavoidable. These cost and payment uncertainties can be avoided in person by using physical currency, but no mechanism exists to make payments over a communications channel without a trusted party. The development of Bitcoin as usable electronic cash did solve many problems all at once, even if the world was slow to catch up to it. In addition to the deflationary effects, a 21 million hard limit, commerce on the internet, decentralised and radical in nature, meant that various forms of commerce were impossible. The lack of innovation by financial firms means that micropayments cannot be done through Visa or Mastercard. It is far harder to transfer, relative to time and value, 20 pence over the internet as it is in pounds. The nature of the internet means that a million people being able to send a tenth of one pence could make it very worthwhile to charge that much, and quite a profitable venture indeed. It could radically change the nature of so much commerce on the internet if it became possible and commonplace that it would open up a lot of new commercial ventures compared to the current general subscription model like Netflix or Spotify. It means that for authors, writers or whomever, they have a natural barrier to entry. If you need to charge £10 for something like a newsletter or some short stories, it means it's quite an unlikely buy for consumers. But if producers can sell an article or digital products, short stories or videos for pennies or even fraction of a penny, it utterly changes the amount of buyers and the profitability for producers. It literally becomes worthwhile to buy something, as buying something for pennies would add up to much more time saved compared to trying to find a pirated version of it or a free syndicated version. A lack of online cash also means subversive transactions are an impossibility online. This is where the first Bitcoin revolution was found, where true commerce on the internet was invented. It is where Ross Ulbricht entered the story, as the man who truly created commerce on the internet. Jeff Bezos merely created an online catalogue and delivery service. Ulbricht created a true commercial legacy that was so dangerous he was locked up for a double life sentence plus 40 years for simply creating a website. The website Ulbricht created, The Silk Road, was the first revolution in internet commerce. One of the most important websites ever created, it was named after the famous trading route in Eurasia and inspired by the novel Alongside Night by J. Neil Shulman. It is known as the first ever darknet marketplace. An ability to list anything somebody wanted to sell, a simple reviewing mechanism, and an honor system for the average customer on the website 
was a revolution in how the internet could use and facilitate commerce on a whole new level. Any drug could be gotten for a fair price, and reviews allowed to demonstrate to each potential customer who was trustworthy selling good quality products, or who was a potential scammer selling underweight items. It opened up the internet and the true back and forth of information into the most gate-kept and private markets of them all, the drug market. Over the course of the 20th century, the drug market had been slowly delegitimized and cornered by law enforcement, turning the drugs trade into an underground network of users and suppliers. It took for somebody to know a guy who was selling good quality drugs locally for you to be able to get what you wanted. Often people might be able to sell one drug at a fair price and then something else at a vastly inflated price. But if you didn't know anybody else, then you were stuck buying from that one person. Informational asymmetry was the key to the drugs trade due to government prohibitions on its trade. But the Silk Road changed all that. Bitcoin's somewhat private transactions meant it needed no middleman to facilitate payments. Bitcoin is of course not entirely private. The transactions can be traced from wallet to wallet, and wallets can be identified. But of course we're talking about 2011 to 2013, and so blockchain analytics was not really a thing yet. In a heartbeat, commerce on the internet meant the best drug dealers were no longer the people who went to the parties and got to know everybody. They were now the most tech-savvy and nerdiest people who would be happy to use peer-to-peer -peer decentralized technology to access information that others simply could not. The darknet marketplace changed one of the last informational asymmetries the internet had not yet solved. Before 2011, drugs were still the preserve of the man with street smarts, capable of looking after himself in a fight, capable of knowing people from all walks of life to sell his wares, and capable of restraining himself from getting too high on his own supply. The last barrier of informational asymmetry, especially on a free market basis, was now broken. The best drug dealer was the sociable guy, able to defend himself in case of attack, able to make sure he would get the money he was owed, but also able to find contacts from anywhere who could supply him with the best and cheapest drugs in his area. Now the internet changed all that. Now the best drug dealers are the autists, with a solid PGP pseudonymous account and the ability to buy cheap and sell it on to other artists he might know around him, then gaining contacts in the local community through new connections and the appearances of street smart coolness or the informational asymmetry the internet could provide. That the internet conquers all is well known, but the internet turned the average internet artist into one of the most well knowledgeable and street smart people it is possible to meet. The old school drug dealer is now something of an anachronism. They are easy targets for the police, deal out in the open, and do, let's face it, often look like drug dealers. The internet artist now appears to be one of the coolest people in society, with access to information previously thought of hidden too much of society, now out in the open, if you know where to look. The darknet market therefore provided a new basis for how society will function. It reminds me of that bit in the US office well, Michael mentions buying a worm for five cents, and Creed says he's paying too much for his worms, and asks him who his worm guy is. Everybody now wants a worm guy. Everybody wants a dark neck guy. The internet artists, who have mastered the first true form of commerce on the internet, 
will become masters of all commerce on the internet, because the true commercial proprietors on the internet will be those with the best darknet connections to take advantage of new fame, both local and cyber, to find more connections and more useful underground items that increasingly become non-drug related but high in demand. The black market on the internet has made a new type of person, but the development of the grey market on the internet is the next step. Grey markets will be far more permissive than eBay and Etsy. You will be able to easily buy all sorts of products that shops would not stock, and it will be way cheaper than ordinary stores. There exists the possibility that heavily taxed items could be bought at near wholesale prices. Rather than pay at a petrol station, you could find petrol from somebody who imports it from the darknet for a third of the price without the taxes on it, buy imported tobacco or alcohol without sales taxes, and so on. These are all going to be a part of the next developments of commerce on the internet. Commerce on the internet will facilitate whole new free market ecosystems where knowledge is key, rather than the soulless shopping experiences of the modern market economy, with corporate shops and low-quality independent stores. There exists a dream in the future, linked to rigorous theories of society, that true commerce on the internet and frictionless flow of information will manifest itself in different ways. If we go back to the white paper, we should remember Satoshi's words on another element we haven't discussed about the possibilities for money on the internet. Perhaps as important as the ability to send millions for a few pennies, is the ability to send pennies, or less, for almost nothing. Quote, the cost of mediation increases transaction costs, limiting the minimum practical transaction size and cutting off the possibility for small, casual transactions. Close quotes. The ability to use the Lightning Network on this podcast to donate a few pennies now and again and send it for almost nothing will be replicated throughout the internet, and the results will be huge. It is so difficult to send small amounts across the internet, across borders quickly and efficiently. Even if you are sending money domestically, it is more complicated than by Bitcoin. It still requires bank account details, sort codes, to be able to transfer money across bank accounts. It is not the best way to send money. The Bitcoin Lightning Network will be revolutionary in its ability to send tiny amounts of money, almost worthless to the people sending it, in terms of seconds of work time at minimum wage, it could prove on a mass scale very, very profitable. How many people would know the odd penny or pound here or there being spent a few times a month to buy a short story or an article or a song from an author or band do you like? If this starts to happen on a mass scale with the breach of the internet and the 7 billion people that live on it, a 5 pence payment to read an article will be vital in creating this new form of commerce. It only needs a thousand people to read an article, 10,000 to buy a short story, or 100,000 to send a pound for a small film you made to make a good amount of money. Even the 50 pound here and there for an article might not sound like much, but it's a lot more than you'd get from advertising, and it allows the producer to grow via decentralized patronage. Micropayments for pieces of digital work might be tiny amounts of money from the people who want to read it, and they won't mind paying 10 pence to read an article directly from a writer, especially if they're the type of person who already pays £3 a month to read an online newspaper 
where the money goes to Rupert Murdoch or whomever. The results will be legion all through online commerce. It will bring back a whole new level to the economy that has long since disappeared. It will finally free the internet of the streaming services and bring back the direct payment model. But at the same time, vastly reducing the price for what you pay. Rather than paying £2.50 for a film, Lightning will mean you only have to pay a few pennies to watch it. You will be able to pay a couple of pennies to buy a song for life. Send pennies to pay your favourite writer and create a whole new class of professional to flourish that previously have not got the correct amount of money for the value they give to society. This will create feedback loops that will create a new golden age for the world that had never previously been thought of before. Yet it might have some downsides. The internet is a free flow of information back and forth. And the idea that all information can now be free has been one of the central tenets of the internet for decades now. In some ways, this will remain, but Bitcoin will also create a monetized layer around the internet. Not an internet that is open and free, but requires payment with an open monetary network. It may create vast changes to the internet's self-governance. Much like Tor is decentralized anonymous internet, there will be a monetized layer built on top of this internet. It may create a certain divide. A layered internet where money becomes crucial in order to access certain information that can only be gotten through payment is to some extent against the philosophical origins of the internet. And yet it is tempered by the fact that it is an open monetary network. The micropaymentization, if that's a word, which it almost certainly isn't, has tremendous consequences that will mostly be good and result in creative output booming, but it won't be without costs. The internet I grew up with won't exist forever. Like society changes, so will the internet. But I have confidence that in many ways it will be a better internet. It will create a radical and positive change for society at large. Commerce on the internet is one of the most important elements of the Bitcoinization process of the internet. The fact it has taken me 14 episodes to get to this episode is perhaps an indictment on the lack of interest in the Bitcoin space in developing commerce on the internet, and simply relying on number go up as the primary reason for Bitcoin's use. It is not a surprise in some ways. Holding Bitcoin and allowing for its general deflationary effects is far simpler and easier than trying to create a whole new layer of the internet. And yet the true rewards will be for the entrepreneur that helps develop true commerce on the internet, and it will be legion. The richest Bitcoiners will most likely be the first masters of commerce on the internet, not the world's greatest hodlers. The cheap corn has all gone. The average person cannot buy 1,000 Bitcoin and sit on it for 10 years. They must develop something in order to earn their Bitcoin, not just being early. So the next major development in Bitcoin will be through commerce on the internet. So that's all for this episode. I will speak to you next time in an episode focusing on epistemological challenges of Bitcoin. Thank you for listening.